0: Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. Your Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast. It's made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can join Southern Mysteries on Patreon and you get a little something in return. You can hear more than 60 episodes in the Southern Mysteries archive, and you also have an option to support the show and hear exclusive monthly episodes that are new this year called The Lesser Knowns stories of lesser known figures related to major historical events. Join me on Patreon today and catch up on all the episodes you haven't heard at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. The Shelton Laurel Massacre in January, 1863 is a striking example of divided Loyalist and complicated battle lines in North Carolina during the Civil War. Historians John Ensko and Gordon McKinney have written that the mass murder of 13 people, accused of being Union sympathizers, proves guerrilla warfare blurred the lines between combatants and non-combatants and obscured the rules of war. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of the Shelton Laurel Massacre. The battle lines of the Civil War were never as simple as Union versus Confederate. Within just about every state in the Confederacy, there were areas where Union sympathizers refused to take up arms for the Confederate cause. When conscription began in 1862, many of these sympathizers were forced to fight for a cause they did not believe in. Depending on the military presence in the region or familial relationships, allegiances often changed. Many Union sympathizers forced to fight for the Confederacy became deserters and fled. Some Unionists committed acts of violence against Confederate sympathizers while Confederates did the same to Unionists. In western North Carolina's Madison County, this tension and violence led to the county becoming known as Bloody Madison. That reference is hard to process for anyone who visits Madison County today. The county was formed from Buncombe and Yancey Counties in 1851 and named for President James Madison. Known today as the Jewel of the Blue Ridge, The county is situated along the North Carolina-Tennessee border. It's a remote recreational wonderland that offers visitors scenic views in the mountains and along the French Broad River, a far cry from the bloody Madison of the Civil War. The Great Divide in Madison County began when a ballot calling for secession was defeated 532 to 345. The minority Confederate supporters of the county had come from other areas where they had connections to or vested interest in slavery. They had to face the reality that their county was a Unionist stronghold, which led to increased tension and violence. Then came the salt issue. Salt was crucial for preservation of food for soldiers. Union leaders understood that keeping salt from the South could help them win the war. They set about raiding Confederate salt stockpiles, and the raids, along with the blockade of shipments into the South, were successful. By late 1892, salt was a protected resource, which led North Carolina Governor Zebulon Vance to declare no salt could be exported from the state where it was already scarce, especially in remote areas like Madison County. The winter of 1863 was harsh for soldiers in Madison County. The lack of food and supplies meant citizens and soldiers suffered. They were hungry and desperate. In early January, Union guerrillas, led by a man named John Kirk, raided the town of Marshall, the Madison County seat. They went from home to home, seizing salt and any food they could find and they shot a captain who was guarding the county's salt supply. The captain was related to Colonel Lawrence Allen, commander of the 64th North Carolina Regiment. The attack on Marshall included a targeted attack on the Allen home. At the time, the colonel was in Tennessee with his regiment, but his wife and their three young children were home. The children were bedridden with scarlet fever. But that didn't stop these men from rushing in and terrorizing the Allens. When news reached Colonel Allen and his lieutenant colonel, James Keith, they were granted permission to return home to Madison County to take revenge. Allen was convinced John Kirk's raiders included men who deserted the 64th, along with men from Shelton Laurel, a small community just north of Marshall. Close-knit Shelton Laurel had become a safe haven for men who pledged their allegiance to the Union and deserted Allen's 64th North Carolina Regiment. Colonel Allen and Lieutenant Colonel James Keith met with General Henry Heath, the commander of Eastern Tennessee. Rumors that a force of 500 men were forming in Shelton Laurel to fight the Confederacy were a part of the discussion when Allen and Keith met with General Heath they discussed a plan to send Confederate forces into Shelton Laurel to find Kirk's raiders and prevent future attacks. A witness said they heard Heth tell Allen, quote, I want no reports from you about your course at Laurel. I do not want to be troubled with any prisoners, and the last one of them should be killed. In late January 1863, the 64th North Carolina began their march into Shelton Laurel. To kill those involved in the Marshall raid and recover salt and property taken during the raid. Two columns of the 64th moved in, with Allen leading one into the valley and Lieutenant Colonel Keith leading the second. They met resistance from Unionists along the way. The 64th spared no one their wrath as they tortured the elderly and women who refused to reveal the location of Kirk or any of his raiders. David Forbes described the torture in her Scalawag article about the massacre in 2017, writing, The women were whipped, bloody, or repeatedly beaten and hanged from a tree. One was tied to a tree in the snow, and her infant was put on the doorway of the cabin in the freezing weather. Still, they did not talk. Homes were burned and livestock slaughtered as the troops carried out the part of the plan Confederate leaders were aware of, and it even suggested following the Marshall raid. General WGM Davis wrote to Governor Zebulon Vance that the population in the Laurel Valley should be starved and driven out of the area. Vance's response was to say women and children could be handled as hostages because they could be made to obey laws. Ultimately, Confederate leaders who had acknowledged and supported the idea of starving and exiling the Union sympathizers would speak out against the horror the 64th unleashed in the Laurel Valley, the cold-blooded murder of 13 people. As Allen and Keith's men continued their approach into the valley, they arrested 15 random men and boys. A Confederate investigation of the events that January found only five of the prisoners were associated with the raid. Some were Confederate deserters, and others were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time as the 64th moved through the valley. Allen's troops were waiting for Keith's, When word reached the colonel that one of his children died of scarlet fever, he made his way home to Marshall, where he found another child dying. Alan stood by his wife as they buried their children and blamed the raiders who terrorized their family. He returned to Shelton Laurel and brought with him renewed rage and a desire for vengeance. Keith told the 15 prisoners they would be transported to Knoxville, Tennessee, and held as prisoners of war. As Allen and Keith's men searched for more raiders, two of their prisoners managed to escape. The remaining 13, ranging in age from 13 to 60, spent the night in the cabin of Judy Shelton. Writer Vicki Lane researched the Shelton-Laurel Massacre for her book, and the crows took their eyes. Her research revealed Judy Shelton was known around Shelton Laurel as Aunt Judy, or Granny Judy. She was a strong-willed woman who was the mother of seven children. She never married because it would have meant losing control of her inheritance. Of all the places these men and boys could have spent their last night on earth, it was fitting that it was in the cabin of Granny Judy, who cared for them that night, and would care for them after death. The next morning, Lieutenant Colonel Keith told the 13 prisoners they were marching to Knoxville. David James described what happened next, writing, Keith marched them a couple of miles to a rocky bend in the mountain's ridgeline, a virtual amphitheater, a place where every mountaineer lurking in the nearby hills could see what was happening, and ordered them killed. Keith ordered the Thirteen to kneel in rows of three to five and gave the command to his troops to shoot the prisoners. Some of the soldiers hesitated as prisoners begged for mercy. Keith told his troops, if they didn't fire, they would be killed. The men who died that day would later be described by their families as desperate, simply trying to provide for their families in a harsh winter and being driven to steal food because of supplies being cut off. This was the complicated war within the war. And war is hell. When the soldiers were ordered to execute these traitors, as Keith called them, they eventually complied, shooting elderly men, then a 13-year-old who was hit in the arm. He was shot and killed as he tried to crawl away. Soldiers would later say it was hard to execute one of the men because he wouldn't stop smiling. They later learned he was mentally handicapped. They ordered the man to cover his face and then shot and killed him. The 13 boys and men who died that day were related. Family members discovered their bodies half buried in a mass grave. Judy Shelton, who had cared for these 13 prisoners in her cabin, the night before they died, help several other women care for the dead and give them a proper burial. News of the tragedy was reported in papers across the United States and in Europe. Confederate officials spoke out against the 64th's actions, saying they were infuriated. Governor Zebulon Vance ordered North Carolina's Attorney General, Augustus Merriman, to investigate. The investigation lasted months. In early February, Merriman wrote to Governor Vance saying he knew who was to blame, writing, I learned that all of this was done by order of Lieutenant Colonel James Keith. I know not what you intend doing with the guilty parties, but I suggest they are all guilty of murder. Such savage cruelty is without parallel in the state, and I hope in every other. Over the course of the investigation, Colonel Allen's involvement was one of the biggest questions. He was not in command of the prisoners who were killed, but he persuaded the men to cooperate at the time of their arrest by promising they would be treated as prisoners of war. Colonel Lawrence Allen faced court-martial and was suspended for six months without pay. Hardly punishment for one of the wealthiest men in Madison County. North Carolina Unionist newspapers called on Union patriots to avenge the Shelton-Laurel killings. National papers, like the New York Times, called the massacre an outrage. Philip Girard notes in his Our State Civil War series that Governor Vance pushed for accountability higher in the ranks. He demanded General Henry Heff explain why he granted Allen permission to carry out the Laurel Valley raid. By this time, James Keith had resigned, saying Heth gave orders to bring back no prisoners and every last one of them should be killed. This claim was supported by a witness who was present when Heth allegedly gave that order. But Heth claimed the men were lying. His powerful friends and allies helped him escape accountability. And soon after, he was promoted to the rank of Major General. Colonel Keith? Well, he ran. He escaped to the mountains while Governor Vance vowed he'd follow Keith to the gates of hell or hang him. Keith was eventually captured, but not by confederates. He was arrested by Union soldiers and indicted on 13 counts of murder. He remained in prison for years, but as the war came to an end, was released and fled to a remote region of Arkansas to avoid those who threatened to kill him and make him pay. For the Shelton Laurel Massacre. Despite Augustus Merriman's letter to Governor Vance proclaiming the man responsible for the Shelton Laurel Massacre was Lieutenant Colonel James Keith, there is the belief that Keith was a scapegoat. In 2016, Max Hunt of Asheville's Mountain Express wrote extensively about the massacre. He spoke with Dan Slagle, a Madison County native who is related to three members of the 64th North Carolina Regiment. He was on a mission to determine if any of his family had been involved in the killings, because two of his distant cousins were among the 13 killed in Laurel Valley. Hunt shared that Dan Slagle's research offers more questions than answers. James Keith was named as the man who gave the order to execute the Shelton Laurel victims. Slagle points to the relationship that existed between James Keith, Lawrence Allen, Zebulon Vance, and Augustus Merriman before the war. Slagle noted Lawrence Allen was the Madison County Superior Court Clerk from 1859 to 1863. That's around the same time Vance and Merriman were practicing law around Madison County. This overlaps with James Keith serving as Deputy Clerk of Court from 1860 to 1861, which would lead you to believe these men knew each other. Here's where it could have been personal for Merriman to point the finger at Keith for the massacre. Slagle found James Keith was the executor of his father's estate. Augustus Merriman served as a trustee for attorneys who represented James Keith's brother, Alfred. Alfred Keith died in 1859, and Merriman tried to collect the money he was owed from the Keith father's estate. Slagle theorized if Merriman and Keith fought over money, Merriman could have had a motive for revenge on Keith when he named him as the man who gave the order to execute 13 men and boys. Slagle found a letter James Keith wrote to a Mars Hill associate that claimed Lawrence Allen was always in charge at Shelton Laurel and it was a Captain Brown who ordered the executions. It's possible James Keith didn't order his troops to kill those prisoners, but it's hard to believe considering his track record during the war. After he resigned, the Asheville News wrote in June 1864 that James Keith was back on death squad duties, once again commanding a volunteer unit to round up and kill Unionists hunting down, and leading raids to steal from union sympathizers. The reality is we'll never know exactly how the Shelton-Laurel massacre was carried out and who ordered the murders. There was never justice for the Shelton families who lost loved ones. Even after Augustus Merriman became a U.S. senator and filed a pension petition in Congress on behalf of five widows of the victims, the petition died in committee. Colonel Lawrence Allen, like so many Civil War soldiers, was haunted either by what he had seen or done during the war. In July 1894, the Charlotte Observer wrote that Colonel Lawrence Allen had attempted suicide in the county jail following his arrest for writing a bad check. Allen recovered, but rumors persisted he was haunted by guilt surrounding his involvement with the massacre. But Allen descendants, who were interviewed by author Vicky Lane, maintained the incident in Laurel Valley in January 1863 was not a massacre, but a justified wartime military action. With the passage of time, the Shelton Laurel massacre was forgotten, apart from residents of Bloody Madison. A historic marker has been erected eight miles from the site of the massacre. For those born and raised in Madison County, there's still a divide between the folks who were proud descendants of the Shelton Laurel men killed in January 1863, and the descendants of those soldiers who killed them. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. To learn more about this independent podcast and view sources for this episode, check the show notes at southernmysteries.com. If you're new to Southern Mysteries, you can dive into the show archive, even hear episodes that are exclusively available to those who support the show when you join me on Patreon. Patreon lets creators like me offer unique content through monthly subscriptions. And we have so many new Patreon friends. A big thanks to Elise from Cary, North Carolina, Melissa from Radford, Virginia, Misty from Mendenhall, Mississippi, Amy from Woodstown, New Jersey, Peyton from Tiller, Arkansas, Madeline from Chicago, Illinois, Purity from Jefferson, Georgia, Nicole from Billings, Montana, Jean from Bronx, New York, Lisa from Florian, Louisiana, and Connie from Wayland, Tennessee for your support along with friends who are listening and supporting from mysterious locations, including Darla, Harry, Jamie, Amy, Joe, Susan, Trisha, and Teresa. Now, if you're new to the show and you're interested in joining, there are two levels of support. You can join and get access to the archives and ad-free Southern Mysteries episodes, or you can join at a level that offers you the archives, ad-free episodes, and a monthly episode of my Patreon-exclusive podcast, called The Lesser Knowns. You can get immediate access to all of those episodes when you join, and you can opt in and out depending on your financial situation. So try it out today at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. By the way, I know not everyone can't support the show financially. So if you want to show your support in other ways, just drop a review where you're listening or share this episode to help your friends find a new podcast to listen to. appreciate your help in spreading the word about Southern Mysteries. Thanks for listening.